0: Hi, this is Norman Horn, founder of LCI. We are excited to announce that the LCI team is going to be attending Freedom Fest this July 13th through 16th in Las Vegas, Nevada. We're going to have an exhibitor booth and a breakout session where we will be talking with everybody we can about how to make the Christian case for a free society. Find out more about LCI's participation at Freedom Fest by going to libertarianchristians.com/events. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have for you today an interview that our very own Carrie Baldwin did on Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone, the Libertarian Institute podcast and YouTube show. Carrie answers a lot of really important questions about abortion that a lot of libertarians and even Christians also ask with respect to how do we engage this issue politically and socially with the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court, given some leaked documents pretty recently. This is a pretty hot topic, and Carrie is the best person to listen to on this. So we want you to hear everything she has to say about it, and that's going to be in the form of interviews over the course of time, because she's being asked by a lot of people to be interviewed on their podcast. So I hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am joined by Carrie Baldwin of Mir liberty.com more importantly she is the co-author of this book faith seeking freedom from the libertarian christian institute miss baldwin thank you for taking the time today thanks for having me on keith miss baldwin why should christians care about politics isn't it just a bunch of liars sort of seeking social status can't we just ignore this thing well christians should care about politics because scripture talks about the proper
2: role of civil governance. And that topic is also misused and exploited by politicians. So there's actually two reasons why Christians should pay attention to politics. Number one is there's content in scripture that talks about what good civil governance is, what God means by civil governance. And number two, there's a lot of people who are misusing and abusing those passages, and we need to be aware of them. So those are the top two reasons I'd say why Christians need to be paying attention to politics. And what
1: does it mean to be a libertarian?
2: Well, to be a libertarian means that you recognize that our human rights are inherent, through the ownership of ourselves, so the principle of self-ownership, and that no one has a right to initiate aggression against another person or their property.
1: It's pretty simple. Why do you think Christianity and libertarianism are compatible? Well, that's a great question. So
2: one of the questions that I get quite a bit is whether or not Christians can actually hold to the principle of self-ownership, this idea that we can own ourselves specifically because scripture says we don't own ourselves, we're owned by God. And my response to that has always been, in relation to God, we are self-stewards. God gives us a stewardship over our body and over our lives. That's how we're able to be held responsible for our actions. But in relation to others, that self-stewardship becomes a self-ownership. Nobody else is responsible for stewarding our lives but ourselves. So in that sense, it's very much compatible with Christianity. The second part has to do with, of course, the non-aggression principle. Basic laws in scripture, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder. Those are very clearly indicating that we are not to initiate violence against other people or their property. Certainly, you could... Expanded on a little bit more than that, there are other references to scripture that talk about how we can use our property in our own way. We've got the freedom to do that. We've got the freedom to make decisions for ourselves and exercise our agency. That is part of our being image bearers of God is being able to exercise our agency and our creativity and steward those things in in a God-honoring way. I guess, Some of the objections might be that Christianity has an element of ethics or morality that goes beyond libertarianism, and that's certainly true. But even in the Christian view of that, we don't believe in forcing others to comply with those things. Again, this goes back to the fact that there are politicians that use Christianity to strong arm and try to make other people obey what might be. A Christian moral ethic, but we would disagree with that.
1: Yeah. I would always wonder, I go, okay, Barack Obama and George Bush are Christians. They don't really tell me about this Christianity that much, not because they're not willing to impose themselves on the rest of us, their healthcare systems, their educational ideas, those they can impose all day. But if you think I'm going to, I guess, go to hell, you don't want to tell me about that? You're terrified that a uh, pothole in the road that I have won't get fixed. Mm-hmm. So you have to warn me and raise all the money, but you're not going to uh, discuss my spiritual eternity while he's at the Bohemian Grove. So of course, it's too bad that kind people can get taken advantage of and then they slander the ideas that Christians for, I don't know, 2000 years work so hard to uh, really build this thing up. When it comes to the concept of helping your neighbor, what do we hear all the time? Jesus was a socialist because socialism (laughs) involves helping people. What is wrong with helping people? Well, there's nothing wrong
2: with helping people, but scripture says that we should be cheerful givers. That implies two things. A giver is somebody who is voluntarily doing an action, taking an action, and cheerful implies that we want to do it. We have a desire to do it. And socialism is the opposite of that. It's taking, it's not giving an opportunity to make the voluntary action to give out of the kindness of our hearts. And it also breeds resentment among those who ultimately live through socialist situations. So there's not even a cheerful aspect to it. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with giving, but Jesus wasn't a socialist because number one, he didn't call the state to be the giver certainly didn't call the state to be the taker it's individuals that he's called to serve one another that's on both an individual and voluntary basis so I think it's absolutely clear that one Jesus wasn't a socialist but two we should be kind to one another we should give and serve to one another but voluntarily and that doesn't even necessarily mean you know giving away everything and not producing profit or anything like that. There's certainly an element that business is a service to others. I've got my own business teaching online courses and critical thinking, and I cannot tell you how much time I spend trying to think about how I can serve my own students better. And that's just good business practice, but it's also good Christian practice.
1: Certainly. When it comes to something like Drug use. You might think of Christianity as, well, uh, people going to church, being very family-oriented, being very orderly. But when it comes to drugs, we might sort of get images of people being lazy or homeless or violent or passed out. It almost seems like these are completely contrastive views. Does a Christian society need to necessarily outlaw drugs
2: No, and really, I mean, the church is a place for sick people. It's not a place where people who have all of their life together go and show off. It is a place to go with your brokenness, whether it's financial brokenness or emotional brokenness or spiritual brokenness. We go to church, one, to fed by God spiritually, but two, so that we can find fellowship with other humans because God created us to be in fellowship with one another and have that community. And that's important. You know, the issue of drugs has been, at least historically, something that we just don't want to have as a part of our society. And now what we're learning is that drug addiction is a symptom of something that is much deeper, emotional trauma, psychological trauma, very bad things that have happened to us in our childhood, or you know, even in our adult life, drive us to addiction as a means of coping. So addicts are really out there with a cry for help. And it doesn't make sense that Christians would turn those people away from the church or just throw them in prison. That doesn't strike me as the Christian thing to do. The Christian thing to do is to get to the heart of their trauma. And as far as the institutional church is concerned; they deal with matters of the heart, you know, spiritual matters. But then we have all of these resources in the market that are available to us for dealing with other kinds of trauma. Therapists, psychologists, even I have to say, the the new studies with psychedelics are very impressive for dealing with and helping people overcome their trauma. So. These are all things that can be provided for by the market, and if they are effective in helping people get well and not do drugs, get off drugs and be relieved of their addictions, I think that that's something that
1: Christians should support when it comes to the issue of abortion hotly debated today it, <laughs> yes. it, 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 or no it's usually hot it's been like totally escalated in right. the past twenty four hours yeah so let's take the worst case scenario. So this would be a woman who has been raped, possibly even underage. Is this woman morally justified in having an abortion?
2: So, yeah, this is interesting. You go straight for the hardest argument. You know, my take with abortion and the rape argument is this. Abortion for rape is crumbs from the table of justice what rape is, is an action of violence against the victim. And, you know, it's not just non-consensual sex, but we can't say it's just non-consensual sex unless we admit what is actually happening in a woman's body when she gets pregnant. And that is the creation of a new human being with rights. In my debate with Walter Block, I insisted that absolutizing fetal rights will absolutize women's rights and we get a very clear picture of what rape actually is and the debate so far when it especially when it comes to rape is to focus solely on the baby as if the baby is the problem as if you know we're debating whether or not the baby is an aggressor or a trespasser or A person or sentient or even alive. And while we're having that debate, the proverbial rapist is walking out the back door. And our criminal justice system actually manifests this. Rape is something that's actually relatively easy to get away with. And it's mostly because we tend to think that rape is just a passing moment. Once it's over, there's not a whole lot that you can do. Oh, except you can have an abortion if you got pregnant. So, By having abortion remain legal, even in the case of rape, we're doing an injustice to women. We're doing an injustice to the babies that are created through rape. And we are not holding rapists responsible for their crime. Now, you had mentioned very, very young girls getting raped and getting pregnant from rape. And that is certainly a tough, tough issue. My position on Abortion is that it could only be done to save the mother's life. If her life is actually in danger, the non aggression principle allows for a proportional response. Now, I think the principle should be you save the life that can be saved. But if the mother's life is actually threatened, I would say that's the exception. And that's in line with the non aggression principle for sure.
1: So, do you have any idea what percentage of abortions are those cases? Because it's the most commonly brought up objection when it comes to everything. So you think 99%, 98%? <laughs> do, do, <laughs> no, do you know? It accounts for about
2: well, rapes account for about 1% situations of incest or very young girls getting pregnant is less than 1%. It's very, very minute. But I would say that. Even though that's a small percentage, especially since it is a primary argument, we should have a good response for it. It's not helpful to just be like, well, that's 1% of the population. I think, no, we need to address it, you know, grab the bull by the horns, so to speak, and address it forthright.
1: Let's go through a few quotes here. I'm not even gonna say, you'll probably be able to guess, but there's no point in poisoning the well. All right. <laughs> okay. An embryo has no rights rights do not pertain to a potential, only to an actual being. A child cannot acquire any rights until it is born. The living take precedent over the not yet living or the unborn. How do you respond to that mentality? Well, first of all, the term embryo encompasses a fairly
2: large range of time, but really the science of embryology confirms that a new, unique, living human exists from the moment conception is complete. Now, I say it in that way because I think it's important to make a distinction between fertilization and this process known as conception. The process of conception takes about three days to complete, and it started with fertilization. One thing that I found in my research of the science, and for those interested before I got into philosophy, I was trained as a medical lab technologist. So I do have a little bit of scientific background, excuse me, medical lab technician. At any rate, that was that was what I did in the Air Force. So I do have a little bit of a science background, and this was of particular interest to me. But what happens during those three days, that process of conception is something known as the maternal zygotic transition. And it's where the instructions for what the cell is going to do changes from mom to baby. And at the end of this transition, baby has completely taken over and all of its development is considered autonomous and self-organizing. And the first thing that baby does is builds for itself the placenta and umbilical cord, which is shelter and food supply. All of this, now I wouldn't say that the baby is acting per se, as we understand human action in the missesian sense, but it's all reflective of what we know as the homesteading principle. So what Rothbard says is required for human rights is number one, you have to be human And number two, you have to be in possession of yourself. This is, uh, I believe it's Stefan Kinsella and and Hans-Hermann Hoppe have expanded on that to say that you must have direct and immediate control over yourself. And the completion of the maternal zygotic transition demonstrates that the fetus has direct and immediate control over itself at that point. So as far as libertarianism is concerned, Those two things obtain, and the fetus, from the moment that conception is complete, has human rights. Now, that's not an argument for personhood. I don't make an argument for personhood. And libertarians don't make that argument because it's much more of a philosophical argument instead of a legal rights argument. But at the end of the day, we don't want the state giving us an answer to that metaphysical question. We don't want the state defining when a human is a person and when it's not a person. We've already been through that. (laughs) We we went through that with the three quarters of a person thing in the constitution. So we don't want the state defining this. We don't want the law defining this. What we want to know is when human rights obtain and libertarianism says that human rights obtain when you, one, have a human and two, when they're in direct and immediate control of themselves. And that is demonstrated with, with the fetus.
0: Hi, everyone. I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. Okay, back to the regular podcast.
1: Let's sort of gear this towards the progressive worldview, just because This is one of their biggest issues, and they are really the gatekeepers of this, so to speak. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you this next one and respond as though you're talking to a progressive, please. Okay. Never mind the vicious nonsense of claiming that an embryo has a right to life. A piece of protoplasm has no rights and no life in the human sense of the term. Abortion is a moral right, which should be left to the sole discretion of the woman involved. Morally, nothing other than her wish in the matter is to be considered. My body, my choice, says the progressive. How do you respond? Well,
2: first of all, yes, my body, my choice. I absolutely concur with that. This comment about it being the embryo being protoplasm, as if it's just a blob of you know, nothingness, whatever is in that protoplasm, is patently false. There is a whole world, a breadth and depth of that world, that microscopic world that is absolutely amazing. And, you know, I'm I'm kind of shocked that the the follow-the-science people on this don't actually follow the science when it comes to embryology. Unfortunately, the pro-life side tries to follow the science, but they misinterpret things as well. But as far as bodily autonomy is concerned, bodily autonomy is absolutely necessary. A woman's choice is absolutely necessary. Her choice is to decide what to do with her body. She gets to decide if she's going to engage in sexual intercourse. She gets to decide if she wants her body to be used to create a new human being. She gets to decide if she's going to take the risk of contraception, which is not guaranteed to keep a new human from being produced. She gets to make all of these decisions, right? She gets to decide who she wants to sleep with. She gets to decide not to do those things. So yeah, her agency matters. What she does with her body matters. But there's a natural limitation created when a new human being is produced inside of her. One of the things that I've argued is that each woman is an owner of her own means of production, And it happens to be the ultimate means of production. It's the the means of producing new humans. And that is both a very powerful position to be in, but it also requires quite a deal of responsibility as well. So yeah, bodily autonomy absolutely matters, but we cannot escape consequences of our choices. And we cannot ask the state to intervene by force when we're up against, the natural consequences or the natural limitations of our choices.
1: What do you say to the claim that not allowing a woman to get an abortion is more or less enslaving her for nine months and 18 years?
2: Well, first of all, if she has made the decision to have sexual intercourse, even if her contraception has failed, nobody's using force against her. The baby can't use force against her. He's not. A, the baby isn't a human actor. It can't take action against her. It has human rights, but it can't take action against her. In the case of rape, the one who's forcing her to carry her baby is the rapist. It's not the state. You know, we use this thought experiment in economics, this Robinson Crusoe thought experiment, in order to sort a lot of this stuff out. And I've pointed out that you know, a man and a woman on an island, no government there, no law enforcement, no courts, no legislators, nothing there, no technology for contraception, right? If Crusoe rapes Jane, who's forcing Jane to carry that baby? Well, it's Crusoe and that's a rights violation, right? So that means that The principle deduced is not, hey, she needs to have an abortion. She's being forced by the baby. No, 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 no. She's being forced by Crusoe. And Crusoe should be held accountable for that. And he should provide restitution, not just for the cost to her, which is huge, but the cost for the child. Rape is the first action of child abuse in that situation. So he also owes restitution to the child. If we understand that restitution can be achieved through a tort, then rape becomes the probably the most expensive crime that somebody can commit. And that's only if we understand that, one, human rights begin from the moment conception is complete, and as a consequence, that women have rights not to be invaded or usurped or enslaved through rape. But in the case of volitional intercourse, she's not being forced. That's just a natural consequence. And we're not free from the natural consequences of our choices.
1: When it comes to enforcement, this is where you could see it either being completely difficult or needing to require something like a, you know, complete surveillance state to make sure no woman is getting an abortion. Now, I get that this wouldn't necessarily refute the position just because enforcement would necessarily be difficult Murder and kidnapping and assault enforcement are extremely difficult. So when it comes to the issue of, if we say abortion's unjustified, how could we go about stopping abortions from taking place?
2: Well, so this is where I think a lot of the disagreements, particularly among libertarians, pro-choice and pro-life libertarians land, is with enforcement. And I think that a lot of the concerns that per-choice libertarians bring up about authoritarian enforcement, that is a war on abortion, you know, war on drugs style, war on abortion situation, those are legitimate concerns. So the libertarian case for enforcement is a just enforcement. It is an enforcement that doesn't violate rights. And so just as we oppose the Enforcement methods in the war on drugs, we would oppose those very same authoritarian enforcements on abortion prohibition. Well, and let me add to this: the methods that we use right now in our criminal justice system for punishing violent crime, like you know, rape, murder, theft, those sorts of things, they're intended to produce a deterrent effect, and they do not. Studies have shown that they do not produce deterrence. And they also don't affect recidivism rates, meaning those offenders will go back out and repeat that crime. So, this authoritarian enforcement doesn't work. And the pro life side needs to understand that it's not useful to us to have abortion prohibition on the one hand, on the legislative side of things, but this authoritarian enforcement which doesn't produce the effect that we want, which is number one, deterrence, and number two, a recidivism rate. So the mode of enforcement that I advocate is restorative justice. And if anybody has followed Matt Kibbe and, and his wife with Free the People, they've produced a documentary. I believe it's called How to Love Your Enemy, but it's a documentary about restorative justice. And as far as enforcement is... Concerned, I think that's a wonderful model because it is geared towards actually helping the, and they call it a responsible party as opposed to the offender. They help the responsible party really understand what it is that they did, how they harmed a victim, and what they can do in their capacity to provide restitution. And that can look different for each individual. But the important part of this is that they produce. Very low incidences of repeat offenders. The recidivism rates are incredibly low, which means it has the effect that we want it to have. In this case, you know, women choosing not to have abortions again. And it involves restitution, which is very much a libertarian principle. And it doesn't destroy people's lives, right? The idea with restorative justice isn't to go destroy the life of the the responsible party, it's to get them into a place where they can be productive members of society as well. So it's very redeeming in that way. And by the way, that carries with it some Christian undertones as well. So I think that pro-life libertarians and pro-choice libertarians can really come together on the fact that we oppose authoritarian enforcement of abortion prohibition. We don't want that. We don't want women who miscarry to be held as suspect for possibly having an abortion, that would be a nightmare. But yeah, I think the enforcement piece, if we understand what a libertarian enforcement looks like, it's much more peaceful. It is aimed at restitution and doesn't aim to destroy lives. And that's important.
1: One of the main tenets of the arguments in favor of, say, the pro-choice worldview, is simply saying that this is not too much of a big deal. If I murder a person, well, then you could see this human being who has all these feelings, all these desires in life, you can see their body dead. And it's mm-hmm. it's very real. And you could say this was a living human being who is now killed. But in the case of abortion, we're dealing with what's commonly referred to as something the size of roughly a grain of Rice, we don't have feelings, we don't have aspirations, we don't have goals, it doesn't have friends or anything. So, this more or less is such a big burden on the woman, potentially. The child might not even be wanted. And it's really just something more or less like a pimple inside of the woman's womb. What is the uh, big deal with uh, allowing, say, the first trimester abortion?
2: Well, libertarianism as we say, based on the idea that our rights are inherent, that we have them because we're humans, not because of anybody else. And libertarians have struggled with this issue of abortion because they don't know how to reconcile the rights of the woman versus the rights of the fetus. So there's a default to, you know, that which is seen, Right, which is the woman, versus that which is not seen, which is the fetus. We have, you know, that distinction with Hayek and Bastia, and the unseen matters. The unseen matters to the whole bit. In fact, what I've argued is that libertarianism itself as a philosophy, the principle of self-ownership, this idea that rights are inherent in our humanity, falters if we don't get this issue right. We can say our rights are inherent in, in our humanity. Right, in our being human, but when does that start? We have to be able to say when that starts. And if the issue is, well, it's up to the woman to decide, then our rights are contingent. They're contingent on what the woman says. Well, that's not libertarianism, that's matriarchy. Then our rights are dependent upon whether or not our mother recognizes our rights and is kind enough to allow us to come into the world as a consequence. So, This issue makes or breaks libertarianism as a system of thought, because if you lose self ownership, you lose the rest of the philosophy. And, you know, as far as the pro choice crowd is concerned, I will re emphasize that there is a benefit to women by recognizing the rights of the fetus, because we are then recognizing what woman actually is. She is an owner of a means of production, she has a right not to be transgressed against either. And that includes rape. And rape is not given the salience, even in libertarian circles, that it ought to be given. So we do a disservice to women in particular if we do not recognize that rights begin when we're in our mother's womb and that she cannot deny those rights. Yes, it can be burdensome. I've got three kids. I remember what it was like to be pregnant. I even understand what it's like to have an unwanted pregnancy. Those burdens are very, very real, but we cannot deal with them in a free market situation. We cannot deal with them in a justicial situation unless we are honest about when our rights begin and what the implications are of that. So it's very important for pro-choicers, I think, to come around to this. And I think if we can understand our common ground and pro-choice and pro-life libertarians have tons of common ground and find where we can actually correct some of these problems like enforcement, like I said, like free market options, then I think that we have a much better chance of obtaining the society that we're trying to obtain.
1: Yeah. I would say the progressive worldview, if you had to sort of narrow it down, we could say someone who, if you want to try and steel man the position, someone who sees virtually all interactions or social institutions as having to deal with one group being the oppressor and the other group being in the position of the oppressed. And Mm -hmm. the goal of the progressive is to move things forward to a place where these places are a little more equal. So if I'm a progressive who wants equality, social justice, and does not want there to be an oppressor-oppressed relationship, what do you say to that mindset when it comes to your ideas on abortion, assuming conservatives oppose it, and we've dealt with the libertarian side, that worldview, what do you say to them to communicate the importance of abortion being morally unjustifiable?
2: Well you know, the oppressor-oppressed paradigm when it comes to women in our capacity to get pregnant, that paradigm translates as women are ultimately victims of nature, which means we can't escape being oppressed. That means we have no agency. That means we can't actually better our lives. That means we can't ever actually become equal. So, if they want to take that view, it's ultimately a very nihilistic view. Women are, women are hopeless. And the only way of achieving quality in that situation is through violence. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a situation where I cannot do anything for myself. I have no agency. I'm a hopeless victim. And the only action that can be taken on my behalf is violence. That perpetuates the oppressor oppressed paradigm. It doesn't free us from anything. It perpetuates it. So I don't know why any woman in particular would want that, especially, I mean, if we put it in terms of the patriarchy, right? The biggest complaint from feminists is, oh, well, we're hopelessly oppressed because of the patriarchy. We need to correct this. They're still looking for a correction, but you can't have a correction in a paradigm where there's always an oppressor and there's always somebody who's oppressed. And in that case with women, we're always going to be oppressed because we're the ones who have the capacity to carry children. We must be victims of nature. There's no way to solve that problem. It's very nihilistic.
1: At the end of the book, each of the authors sort of give their thank you and their acknowledgments. You wrote To Gregory for being a dear and faithful friend who helped me understand the works of Mises, Rothbard, and others, particularly through a Reformed theological perspective. I want to go through those last three. Mm -hmm. What is the most important lesson you learned from Ludwig von Mises?
2: Oh, man. I'm still learning lessons from Mises, but what I've learned from Mises has to do with human action. There's a quote, and I don't have it at hand, but I had mentioned it in my debate at the Soho Forum. And there's a quote where I inserted <laughs> I inserted female pronouns in order to make this more applicable to women. But it's this idea that women can control what happens to our bodies. There are things that we can do within natural limitations, granted, but there are things that we can do with our bodies, for our bodies, to our bodies in order to go about our own life, making decisions, improving our life, serving others, that sort of thing. So Mises has really helped me understand this connection to human action and what it means to me as a woman, as as a free woman, a woman who's not a victim of nature, a woman who can look at my own capacity to be a mother, to bear children as something that's powerful. I'm an owner of a means of production. That's a powerful place to be. So I would say Mises is incredibly empowering. His thoughts on human action are profoundly helpful.
1: How about most important lesson from the works of Rothbard?
2: Mm. Rothbard, definitely his concept of human rights is property rights. I think he's absolutely right that property rights disambiguates this issue of human rights. You know, Rothbard, unfortunately, was wrong when it came to abortion. I don't think that he was consistent in that. Although he was writing at a time where we didn't have access to the scientific information that we have now. I do think that his default was to ensure that a woman's self-ownership was recognized. You know, one of the things that I've said is that conflict on this issue of abortion exists because both sides compromise rights. And the pro-life side tends to compromise the woman's rights in favor of the fetus. And that's not a solution either. So even though I think Rothbard was wrong on abortion, I think he was right on his concept of property rights as human rights. I think he was right to default to a woman's self-ownership. We just need to correct it a little bit now, now that we have more, more
1: information. And what is important for people to know about Reformed theology? Ah, well, Reformed theology, which is
2: also known as Calvinism, tends to get a bad rap. And I mentioned my friend Gregory there. We've been working on a Reformed libertarianism and Reformed anarchism statements. Those are both a defense of libertarianism. And libertarian anarchist principles from a reformed theological perspective. Reformed theology tends to be mm, probably one of the hardest theological nuts to crack when it comes to compatibility with libertarianism. And I really believe that there is a very strong case to be made from a reformed theological perspective for a libertarian society. So I would say if people want to find out more about what that means, what reformed libertarianism means, what reformed anarchism means. I can certainly give you links to those, but you can also go to mereliberty.com slash Romans 13 to get a lot of that information from my website.
1: You wouldn't think it'd be too hard. I mean, if we're starting with Calvinism, all right, well, we start with total depravity. Okay? <laughs> yeah. All we have is depravity in all of Washington, D.C. All right. all right. What's right. next? Well, What do we have next? Unconditional election. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's too much of a conflict. It just seems like there's a great spin going on where people will say, well, you care about the poor. Well, obviously you have to advocate for uh, the state. You care about women. Are you a sexist? Well, then obviously you need to be Mm pro-choice as though the only time we can really support voluntary choosing is when it comes to this issue of abortion. Is there anything that you would say the conservative sort of gets wrong in their worldview of saying, I'm a Christian, I believe that more or less the state has a significant role to play in making sure things don't go to hell in a handbasket? Are they just a little off or is there something inherently wrong with supporting any kind of state? Well, I would say From a
2: conservative Christian perspective, if you look at the way conservative Christians use the state, they use the state to create laws that compel certain kinds of morality. Most Christians, I would say, are probably aware of the two greatest commandments. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. What I've noticed from conservative Christians who try to leverage the state is they try to create laws that compel obedience to that first command, to love God first. We cannot compel love of God. That's something scripture says. We can't compel love of God. God doesn't compel us to love Him. And certainly, if that's the case, man's law isn't going to compel us to love Him either. And there's really no sense in trying to have an artificial facade of people going through the motions that appear to love God when in their hearts, they don't really love God. On the liberal side, the liberal Christians tend to use the state to compel love of neighbor. And God doesn't compel us to love our neighbor. Man's law isn't going to be effective in compelling us to love our neighbor either. That's also voluntary. So both sides of that use the state to try to compel something that God doesn't even compel us to do. We're, we're called to do that voluntarily. And quite frankly, we can't love each other without God first loving us. And that's what scripture says. God is love and we love because he first loved us. It has to go in that order. The state doesn't enter into that equation.
0: Hey, everyone, if you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer you know, free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute, because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps we actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as 5 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know, That really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute.
1: I really like the uh, example you use in here. So this is from page 44, Faith-Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. So people might just say something like, well, all right, I don't like some people ruling over others any more than you do, but we need things like protection. One of the great reasons people should read this book is just how clever and short the answers are. Underwriters Laboratories has been a leading product safety testing and certification firm for more than a century, and it earns billions of dollars every year doing it, largely motivated by concerns of insurance companies that would lose money if policyholders suffer a loss. Burglar alarms, security cameras, fences, locks, and self-defense products are all produced by entrepreneurs serving the demand for protection against wrongdoers. So in that statement alone, you already have people serving their fellow man. So it's almost like even if you are worried about this self-interested sort of society that's maybe very hedonistic, well, if you can't get a dime out of my pocket unless someone voluntarily gives it to you, you're necessarily going to be engaged in the service of others. And you don't need some people ruling over everyone else to do those things. We have all these voluntary mechanisms of property protection. So Mm -hmm. even if you say, yeah, well, we need people to protect our person and property, why would you want a state for that? It's so important. You need to not have a coercively funded monopoly.
2: Yeah, well, and- I'm a part of a group of people who are going through a program learning how to build their membership websites. I have a membership website. And the whole theme there is, how do you serve your members? How do you improve your services? How do you make this something that is beneficial for them? Like all of the things that businesses get criticized for being self-interested and greedy and profit driven like none of that is entering into the equation when we're going through this training and this training by the way isn't even like fundamentally libertarian they're just going off of what works what they've known to work and what works is serving others is using your business to serve others how can i serve my customers how can i improve my product or my service That is intuitive for the business owner who's trying to build their business. And that's important. We don't need the state to tell us to be kind and benevolent. We know that building relationships with our customers, that serving our customers is what allows that to thrive. And that's mutually beneficial. They get something out of that.
1: Do uh, you ever read to your kids the Tuttle Twins books?
2: Yes, we have the Tuttle Twins. (laughs) I use the Tuttle Twins books for my
1: middle school class as well. I'm
2: very familiar with them. I love them.
1: Do you have a place online where you list all your favorite books for kids that you are just (sighs) familiar with working with?
2: You know, I haven't done that yet. That's a really good idea. I should do
1: that. (laughs) The the only reason I ask is just because I know so many where I'm like, oh, they're they're right at such a good time. Where you should have seen this kid's face light up reading the I think he, they called it the Miracle Pencil, um, oh, yes, whatever their knockoff of Leonard Reed's pencil was. Mm-hmm. This kid loved it. This little girl thought it was terrific. Another one of the girls loved whatever their knockoff was of Frederick Bastiat's The Law. The parents said, yeah, I read it to her every night. She absolutely loves it. They love it. So it's not just like, well, they're on our side, so we have to, you know, beat the kids over the head with them. They're no. actually fun. The kid's they're- like
2: that, they have um, the important my, thing. my, yeah, my son's favorite Tuttle Twins book is The Creature at Jekyll Island. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. that's their favorite. I remember during the lockdowns, I homeschool my kids, I homeschool and work from home. So during the lockdowns, when they first happened, one of their friends came over to the house when she was done with her public schooling stuff, her remote public schooling stuff. And we were finishing up an economics lesson. And I use the Socratic method with my kids and in my courses, which is basically learning through dialogue. And Mm -hmm. so we invited my daughter's girlfriend to come over. And she's like, this must have been fourth or fifth grade. But we talked about the book, The Creature at Jekyll Island. We talked about what money is and, and how it's created. And it lasted all of 15 minutes. But I engaged her with questions, you know, these Socratic questions that, got her involved in the dialogue. And when the 15 minutes was up, she was like, wow, I learned so much more from that than I think I'd learn in a year from school. And it was fun. She absolutely Mm -hmm. loved it. So yeah, engaging kids with this stuff is absolutely amazing. My middle schoolers
1: absolutely love it. They have so much fun with it. And that's the amazing thing about 12 years and tens of thousands of dollars in state schools It's unbelievable how they will just crush anyone's desire to really learn anything important. It's like I I always thought learning was just this boring, terrible thing. And they go, now, by the way, you got to work hard so you can graduate high school. And then you got another four years. I don't know anything about what you're interested in. But all I know is this is so bad. You need four more years of college. That's basically what they're uh, unintentionally saying. So well you I, always think it's this terrible devastating thing and then you finally learn my first introduction to like real education was Glenn Beck on his chalkboard now that is like taking someone who's only drank water and then giving them crystal meth it mm-hmm. was like unbelievable what a shock i go oh learning this thing could actually be interesting mm-hmm. and then and then I just took off. And then I'm like totally ignoring class so I could read, you know, The Myth of the Robber Barons by Burke Fulton yeah. and all these other just brilliant books. I'm sorry to interrupt you. What were you going to say? No, that's
2: okay. Well, a few things. I mean, public school is is worse than just providing a bad service and saying, hey, you've got to have more of this bad service. And it does crush. It totally crushes creativity. It crushes your interests. Like your interests are set aside. Your interests are there for a reason your interests are there because that's something that you are supposed to use. I do this with my students all the time. I don't have an agenda, so to speak, when I have my Socratic sessions with my students. I operate from where their mind is going and I ask them questions based on where their mind is going because it doesn't serve them for me to try to veer them away from a place that their their mind isn't ready to go. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our kids have minds. They're designed to think as well. They need to learn the skills. They need to learn how to learn. That's what I've taught my kids is how to learn so that they can teach themselves whatever it is that they want to teach them. I don't have to be a subject matter expert. I can't be. But you know, public school crushes all of that. It doesn't teach them how to learn. It teaches them what to think, not how to think. It totally stifles their creativity. It suppresses their interests they want to pursue. And for what? I mean, you get kids going to college now who aren't even ready to be in college. And so it doesn't make sense. That whole system doesn't make sense at at all.
1: That's why, you know, it was so devastating seeing all these kids in masks for like eight hours a day, five days a week. But Mm -hmm. I mean, that really is just the perfect symbol. It's like, you know, you don't get to show your face here. It's like, that's too much individuality. It's like, you got to be mm. acting the same. You have to be reading the same material. You have to be giving the same answers. There's one right answer to all of this. And right. we're going to make it hard for you to breathe as we do it. Yeah, um, it's, and it's if grandma terrible. doesn't pay property taxes, grandma goes to jail for this terrific system. Absolutely inhumane. Uh, do you have uh, any uh, good resources for homeschoolers? Oh, tons. I would
2: say... You know, I'm a huge advocate of self-directed learning, the Socratic method. I do teach courses, as I mentioned. I've got a something called the Liberty Seminar, which is for middle schoolers, high schoolers, and adults. It is teaching the skills of critical thinking through dialogues about living in a free and prosperous society. So th- that's number one. You can check out my website, mereliberty.com. There's a tab for courses. I also have sure. a course for homeschooling parents or like micro school teachers who want to understand how to incorporate the Socratic method into their models. So it doesn't matter what curriculum you're using at home. You can use my course to give you a leg up of, <laughs> on how to actually get your kids thinking about whatever it is That you're teaching them. So, I would say those two resources are very valuable. Another resource that is not my own, but I learned from a great deal is something called The Well Educated Mind. And this is a book for adults, but it teaches adults how to go back through and learn how to learn themselves. And she also has a curriculum. The author also has a curriculum called The Well Trained Mind, which is for homeschooling parents. And yeah, The only other one that I would recommend is Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. It teaches reading comprehension up through the doctoral level, which is something that no school teaches. Usually schools only teach you reading comprehension through sixth grade, and you're kind of left to figure it out the rest of the way. So Mortimer Adler's book really teaches you how to do it through a doctoral level. It's a full comprehensive
1: book there. And uh, final question, what is the best part of being a mom? Oh my gosh. Well, I've got teenagers now.
2: (laughs) I'd say the best part of being a mom is seeing the fruits of my labor. I took my kids on an entrepreneurial track instead of a college track with homeschool. And so watching them experiment with entrepreneurship and making money and serving others through their skills, that's been a delight. They both have jobs now and they're learning all these life skills that kids their age don't get to do but that's rewarding on a, on a relational level as well because now I'm at a point where I'm able to become friends with my kids and
1: build the next part of our relationship, so. The website is mereliberty.com. Thanks to everyone for watching. Keith and I don't tread on anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Miss Baldwin, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.